and welcome to Securing Sexuality, the podcast where we discuss the intersection of intimacy and information security. I'm Wolf Gorlick. He's a hacker. And I'm Stephanie Gorlick. She's a sex therapist. And together we're going to discuss what safe sex looks like in a digital age. Today, we're joined by Simon Dubé, PhD. He is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Kinsey Institute, specializing in human sexuality, sex tech, and aerobotics, the study of human-machine erotic interaction and co-evolution. His work also explores space sexology and how we can integrate sex research into space programs. He is the communication representative of the International Academy of Sex Research, co-chair of the International Congress on Love and Sex with Robots, and his work is funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today. And let's talk about your, your journey. Let's start off with that, right? How, how does one come to research human-machine erotic interaction? It's a long story, but it really uh, started with an interest in neuroscience of social interaction. And I discovered a few years ago that there was a researcher at Concordia who was doing neuroscience of human sexuality. So right off the bat, that piqued my interest. And I mean, when you get into grad school, you have to, to choose a topic uh, that will interest you, uh, not only for the six, five or six years of your master's, your PhD, and your graduate school, uh, but also maybe a topic that you'll be interested in pursuing for uh, the rest of your life. So I got into grad school to study human sexuality, but uh, rapidly I started working on BDSM and kink and the development of sexual preferences. But as things uh, continued on, I definitely realized that one of the biggest change in human sexuality was coming from the growing integration of technology uh, in, your, in our human intimacy. So I got more and more interested in that, in the realm of sex robots and uh, VR technology and how, how this was and was going to transform and reshape the way we connect intimately. And the more I got into it, the more it just started to occupy 95, 99% of my time. And I decided to uh, move towards that, looking into how sexual preferences are reshaped, but we discovered rapidly early on that there was just a lack of research and not just a lack of research uh, on human machine erotic interaction, but a lack of way to do research, a lack of a framework, a lack of good approaches, of interdisciplinary approaches and different perspectives to tackle these issues. We kind of took a step back and realized, look, we actually need to build a field. <laughs> we need to integrate a way for people to have a common language, common concepts, to have a common vision between engineering, technologists, um, people who are software engineers developing these systems, and a common language with people from social sciences, human sciences, human sexuality, to talk about the same things and try to approach these problems from different angles in a collaborative way. So. That's how aerobotics was born. Uh, it was born as a field. It was born as an idea, a concept that would bring human-machine interaction and sexology together and provide some of the tools and ideas that would, that would provide theory, but also provide uh, empirically testable hypothesis. And that's what you also need uh, in science, not just cool ideas that I think people can latch onto and make a, a good one study about, but something that is going to launch a full research program. Um, 
So we published Foundations of Robotics in 2020. We proposed the concepts, we proposed some idea, a theoretical framework. Uh, we proposed all kinds of things. And as we were building up this, uh, this field, we were also thinking about the applications of these technologies for the future. And clearly, one of the, um, the big applications of, of these new technologies is to connect people remotely to provide intimacy and sexual uh, experiences to people who might otherwise either not have access to or be interested in expanding the realm of uh, their sexuality to, through technological means. Now, um, when we think about these things, we also realize that, yeah, these technology could be really helpful for people who live in isolated, remote, confined environments. So uh, thinking about that, the most <laughs> isolated, confined, extreme, difficult environment, uh, aside from here's places on Earth, is space. There's nothing more extreme uh, than living in space. So with everything that was going on in the space industry uh, and the push to colonize uh, new worlds, to settle new worlds, to perform long-distance uh, travels, we realized <laughs> aerobotics and its technology could be used to help astronauts and people uh, who live in space for ever longer periods of time. So we <laughs> it, it came kind of as a a spur of the moment inspiration, a eureka moment where I woke up one morning, I'm like, we need to talk about dildos in space. Okay? <laughs> we, need, we, need, we need to talk about sex toys in space or VR in space or in general, erotic technologies and aerobotic technologies and how they could help monitor, provide pleasure, provide connection to people who live in, in space for long periods of time. When I say long periods of time, I'm not talking about like three or four days and maybe a week. We're talking about people going there for many months, six months, maybe multiple years if we have to do a trip to Mars or, or live for a few months on, on a base on the moon, which we're aiming for for the establishing is starting in 25 and 27. So it's coming together. So we wrote uh, a piece for the conversation titled uh, something like Sex in Space, Could Technology Meet the Intimate Needs of Astronauts? And that piece just went, <laughs> um, I won't say viral, but it got a lot of attention. Not long after, the company, the sex tech company, uh, WeVibe, who's now part of Lavani Group, and they contacted us and were like, would you be interested in expanding your ideas about that in a, in a report, in a consultancy report that we can, like, how can sex tech help uh, astronauts? And so we said, yeah, we'll, we'll do something and just expand on these ideas. And while we were doing that, that's around the end of 2021 or at the end of 2020, we really realized, look, we, we just, um, we need to take again a step back we're already talking about solutions for astronauts and technology that could be used in space where we're not even addressing the big question of how are we going to have like sex and intimate relationship in space? We're not doing any research on that. So again, <laughs> um, 
I don't know, in the famous words of Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. We had to recreate a new field. <laughs> like we had to, uh, we had to take another step back and be like, how do we approach these things? And we had already done that in robotics, but we had to do something different now for the space sector. So we wrote the case for space sexology because we were not the first to call for more research in this area. But we realized also, look, no one's kind of giving a roadmap or like a model, a framework to how to approach these questions and then build a roadmap of studies. Because uh, sometimes it's great to say, look, you need to study this. But then NASA is like, why? <laughs> or other people are just, why is it important? And how? Then after that, once you convince people of the importance of your subject, you need to give them something to move on. So that's what we did in the case for space sexology, and it launched another wave. And that is it for now for what is really a long introduction, but I think it kind of gives a really broad overview of how I came into grad school, how I came to aerobotics, and how now we're mixing this with space sexology, uh, moving human sexuality into the future. I remember reading some articles on um, uh, various journals. I think I saw it on space.com. I'll try and find that for the show notes about how there was actually this idea that maybe, you know, when we send man missions to Mars, we send only women missions to Mars. Maybe the easiest way to handle this is just to not send guys at all. And it, it made me laugh for a couple reasons. A, the idea that if you have a group of women together, they won't be sexually active together. And B, the idea that we would rather just gender segregate an entire field of science and frankly an entire planet than talk about sex in space than talk about this idea of sexuality um as you have have helped to build out this field and expand this discipline what sort of blowback or or reactions have you gotten? Because the idea that the solution to this is we only send girls to space seems um, a little heteronormative and also a lot unscientific to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where to start when I hear these, these potential solution. It is completely ludicrous. First of all, like you said, obviously, you're completely underestimating homosexual behavior. Like you have bisexual, lesbian, pansexual individuals. If you send uh, women in space, they'll probably explore their sexuality still, or even maybe designed to adapt and try to explore and like meet their needs still, either alone or with partners. So that is not a solution. B, like you said, we'll need everyone in space. We'll need males as well. We'll need the um, uh, transgender folks. We'll need uh, we'll need to accommodate the large diversity of the LGBTQ acronym. And we'll need people also to reproduce and raise children. And we're, we're rather than and trying to find a way to have safe, consensual sex in space, including sexual activities and being build meaningful, intimate relationships. People are like, yeah, they try to like cut short, but uh, and try to find a solution that I think they've just not thought through for more than five seconds. Um, but at the same time. Um, I want to say there is advantage. I don't. I know there's a myth. Uh, there's the heterosexual component related to that, obviously, but there are also 
a reality that uh, women and female bodies, uh, more specifically, take more less space. They consume less oxygen. They, they, they sometimes they they beat the specs in terms of collaborations and on many tasks. They outperform uh, their uh, male colleagues. So they kind of combined this some of the data related to that, some of the easy shortcut of human sexuality that they've done into a. A kind of funny idea that they've thrown in the media and then it got traction and clickbaits and but it's not a realistic solution it is uh, we, we need everyone to go there when um, coming back to your question like what are some of the blowbacks uh, or let's say issues or challenges that have uh, have risen when I, I talk about these subjects and my colleagues talk about these subjects. I'm really not alone. I work uh, with a team of wonderful people, uh, Maria Santaguida, Shana Pandya, Alex Leyendecker. I'll, I'll plug their names throughout the process because I'm here to talk to you, but this is coming also uh, from a collaborative work. Um, Dr. Dave Angsil. Usually, uh, same as aerobotics, there's kind of three big reactions. The first one is a knee-jerk reflex of giggles and why and uncertainty usually it's quite positive people are just they think it's funny they think it's a futuristic idea that is they don't take it seriously uh but it's not a negative uh reaction when they they don't um they think it's wrong they think it's problematic or it's uh we shouldn't be doing that it's it's more um curiosity um that knee-jerk giggle, but then afterwards they think about it uh, for a few seconds and they realize, oh yeah, well, yeah, we'll actually have to deal with that. And usually it leads to a good conversation. The um, second reaction, obviously, from people who are in the field, they're like, yeah, actually, we, we need to deal with that, but we have some really intense pushback from internal organizations. Um, and they don't necessarily understand the importance of doing that, or at least they don't consider it a priority. Because right now we're still dealing with trying to figure out how to move into space, how to breathe into space, how to work and live together uh, in space. Um, but it's it's going fast. And um, conducting research and in, in sex research in general and relationship research, it takes a lot of time. So we need to start right now. And we're already doing long analog missions. We're doing long missions into space. And now we're going to establish bases on the moon in the next five years and then pushing to Mars. So I think it's a bit, it's a bit late right now to, uh, to start this research, but better late than never. The last, last reaction that I get the most is obviously, and that's a very, I want to say a very small percentage, um, except on social media, because Twitter is hell. And, and, uh, but there's obviously always um, a portion of the population who has two negative components. The first one has to do with the fact that they don't think we should be going into space. They don't think we should be investing anyway in space. They don't understand why it's important for uh, climate change to uh, expand, um, you, you expand consciousness, expand life into the universe, uh, try to stop um, using the resources that we, we're here on Earth, trying to discover and uh, everything that's... They don't understand the importance of, uh, for their health, for the well-being of our planet, but for the well-being of our civilization. And, and um, so the, first of all, like, it starts there. <laughs> they, they don't even agree with the fact that we should be going into space. So why even bother like putting uh, resources into people masturbating or having sex and um, sexual well-being in space? So 
And the la- the second part of that is just inherent conservatism and moral conservatism. Like I have to deal with people who are, who send me prayers, thoughts and prayers, and like they pray for my soul. Uh, they're like, oh, you're probably going to hell and uh, and these things. Um, that doesn't happen too often. Um, but the first few times it happened, I, that's where I thought, yeah, I actually made it as a sex researcher. I think that's kind of a, like a real of passage that every sex researcher receives these uh, these claims of like, look, you're you're doomed for hell, repent your soul, and so there's people obviously who have, who don't think anyway uh, sexuality and the way we're dealing with it on Earth should be the way it is right now, or we're sure they don't have like a very sex positive approach to it. So why even bother in space? So I'd say that's most of it, but most really like the takeaway is that most people um, have a kind of a positive approach to it. Um, And part of our big job uh, that my colleagues and I are doing is trying to inform the public and organization of why this is important. It is not actually an area that is extremely expensive to invest on in terms of research. It is nothing compared to rockets, to to, uh, the technology that's behind just a filtering system or hair reading systems or like a toilet in space. It is nothing that complicated. It's social engineering. It, It is social engineering and it's human research and these things that it takes time. It takes resources as well, but it takes more time than resources when it comes to money. So I... We're just trying to make people understand this is important. You should invest in that because what's going to happen is not that someone is not going to be able to breathe or like drink or eat in space or for some reason, there'll be something broken. There's plenty of redundant systems and emergency contingency plans and whatnot. What's going to happen is someone's going to snap in space. They're going to they're going to lose their shit. Like they're going to be depressed, anxious, sexually frustrated, miss their partner. They'll have relationship difficulty with their colleagues. That's what's on a long period of time. That's what I'm more worried about than something breaking out there. So confession time. I think I might be one of those people that ask those questions sometimes. Wolf and I, generally speaking, are really aligned in our values and our vision and what we enjoy and what we talk about. And one of the only truly knockdown drag out fights he and I have ever had was about a year after we started dating about the hypothetical idea of generation shifts on, in space. As a social worker, my philosophy has always been, why are we looking at other places? Why are we not investing that money? Why are we not investing that money fixing things here? (laughs) Why are we throwing millions of dollars into space research? Why are we talking about generation ships because we have to flee the planet when we could just be fixing the planet? So before I let my um, counterpoint partner take over and nerd out with all of his whys, Tell me on it, Simon. Tell me why. Tell me why space exploration matters. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a super fundamental question. Two things. First of all, we we need to stop creating false dilemma. It's not one or the other. We can invest resources here on Earth to fix some of our problems. We also need to be um, very mindful that some plenty of the technologies that we're developing for space are actually reused here to improve uh, the quality of our life, the efficiency of the way we use resources, and also tackling some of the challenges in places where on Earth is very difficult to live. And it's going to be increasingly difficult to uh, to live in certain places with climate change. Now. 
it might sound like a bit nihilistic uh, on my end, but I don't see capitalism unfortunately like changing in in many ways. But I see that if we can find a way to get our resources outside of planet and uh, planet Earth, and in an ideal world, transform Earth into a garden, like a national park. Think about that. Like think about getting our fuel or resources in places where there's no life possible and there's no life, there's nothing, there's desert. We're talking about rocks and sands and gas and environments that cannot sustain life unless we bring it and we find ways to adapt to it. These places on earth, we have a very, we're kind of stuck on an island. There's very finite resources on this little island. And right now, we are using it at an increasing speed. And I agree with you, we need to figure out a way to not do that and not waste our resources. But we also, in my opinion, are not going... Unfortunately, I don't, I don't see uh, agency from governments and a, um, a desire to change our consuming habits. And, but if we don't change that, we need to go and get those resources absolutely somewhere else. That's really like the practical economic... Uh, aspect. Two other main reasons. On a sufficiently long period, something's going to happen. Okay, the dinosaurs, like as Rick Tomlinson would say and other people in the space, the dinosaur didn't have a space program. Okay? One day, there's a rock, there's a sun, there's an asteroid, there's something that's going to happen. There's going to be a huge pandemic, there's going to be uh, some climate change uh, or the sun on a sufficiently long period of time the chances of an existential existential threat are a hundred percent something is going to happen that is going to be cataclysmic whether it's a volcano whether it's a earthquake major something's going to happen and we need to survive i mean we need like on a really practical way and the only other i think opposite view to that is i mean I choose life. I choose the expansion of consciousness in the universe. If you tell me, I mean, it's okay that we, on 5 million billion years, we extend it, we've done our time, that's fine. There's actually a good uh, argument to do that. But I choose life. I choose the expansion of consciousness and survival, and not just us as a humanity, of other species and other uh, forms of life that we have on Earth. I want to continue that and expand that into the universe. If you think about that, when we as a human and our brain and other animals are being aware of our universe, we are part of that matter. We're the universe becoming aware of itself, and I'm for the expansion of that consciousness and growing the, what I mean, must like to say the, the light, the light of consciousness can, can obviously uh, be extinguished very easily. We are on a small island, a small pig of light in a huge right now desert of nothingness where there's infinite resources there, very finite resources here. The third point that I think really must not be underestimated, and it's more like a philosophical uh, point, which is there's knowledge to be gained. There's things to be discovered. There's things, there's beautiful things that I think as a species, we need to uncover and explore and, and learn about. We are capable of doing that. We have, in a way, in my opinion, a cognitive responsibility to, to learn these things and try to preserve it and try to, to learn from it. So there's things that we still need to discover in our planet, including how to live in harmony <laughs> with it. But there's also infinite things to discover outside. And I 
I'm a scientist by training. I'm also uh, at the before I was a scientist, a very curious individual. I just want to know. <laughs> I just want to know what's out there, and because uh, otherwise, what's what's the point? I mean, we can pack it in and just say that's fine. We're good. Uh, we had our time and and end here. But that's seriously, it's a personal choice. At the end, I, I found that. Um, I choose life, I choose knowledge, and I choose the survival of our species in harmony with our universe. We still have to figure out all of this. Thank you, Simon. I don't know that uh, we have won her over yet, but uh, I think that was a great answer. And the next time it comes up, I'm just going to turn to her and go, you know what? The dinosaurs didn't have a space program. That's going to be my response. But let's let's talk about that, right? In terms of choosing life and choosing consciousness and, and believing the human species, a lot of the human species, of course, is driven by our relationships, is driven by our, our feelings of intimacy. So as you've been looking at this, as you've been researching this, what, what approaches have you taken? I know you've put together a, a biosocial framework. Can you, can you talk us through how to even approach this concept? In the case for space sexology, after trying to make people understand why this is important, why there's issues, why there's actually problems and challenges to be addressed, but also huge benefits uh, that could be derived from investing in sexual health and wellness uh, in space. We said, look, we need to kind of give an idea of how to approach that. Now, programs of research in the space industry are famously divided, but I say divided, they're really integrated together. But People often think about in a, a little uh, binary way, technical and human factors, okay? But it's not binary. Both of them work together, technical factors and technical research related to vehicles, habitats, uh, name it. They are designed for humans. And so it's human factors that also informs the way we develop uh, those technical factors and vice versa. The limits of our technical capabilities influence the way we need to adapt and train astronauts and 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 screen them and and really uh, select who's going to go to space for a longer period of time. So think about it as uh, bidirectional relationships in this instance. So space programs they are in they're divided in plenty of areas, but these two big ideas of technical and human factors are what we need to be tackling uh, together, and we need to position. Space sexology, the comprehensive study of extraterrestrial intimacy and sexuality within these ideas, it can be in what we call human research programs um, that NASA have. It can also be on, it, it, but it needs to be also integrated with the technical factors. How are we going to provide the necessary equipment, environments for people to have safe, uh, meaningful sexuality? And I, I'm not just talking here about masturbation, sex, and building intimate relationships. I'm thinking about how do you build a meaning? How do you have a space with your partner? How do you deal with power dynamics if someone falls in love with someone of severe? How do you deal with pregnancy? How do you, if someone uh, gets pregnant on a long mission to Mars because, I don't know, they use contraception, contraception failed, or they actually decided to have children on another planet, you need to be technically, not just like how we deal with that. We need to create environments, equipments. We need to, to, to be uh, dealing with these situations. But we also need to train astronauts and crews to be respectful, mindful, consensual, um, have exceptional uh, erotic and sexual communication skills to deal with the complexity of, look, we already have problems here on Earth with and difficulty, or what I say at conferences like wink, wink, 
we've solved all of all, we've already solved and figured out how to have meaningful and positive sex. Obviously not, but multiply this by the complexity of living in space. So already in psychology and sexology, we in medical research and development, we have developed already plenty of frameworks to address these interdisciplinary field. One of them is the biopsychosocial approach. It's a way of approaching a problem and studying a phenomena by in a comprehensive manner, thinking about, yes, the biological aspect. How, for example, are we going to make sure that a fetus grows in a healthy manner in space? How are we going to make sure children are not affected by radiation, gravity, the stress of living in these environments? Now, there's also the psychological component. How um, how is it going to affect their cognition, their memory? How is it going to affect their psychological and their mental health? How, um, how are we going to deal with depression, anxiety, but also um, in a more holistic, positive manner? How do we build meaningful, positive light that are fulfilling, like careers, jobs, partners, uh, fun, pleasure, leisure activities? Like We need to be thinking and Thankfully, human research programs in, in space organization, that's compared to technical factors, maybe less of an investment, but it is still an important investment. And NASA, with the up, upcoming um, missions, including CSA, also the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, they are investing more and more in understanding how people live and thrive um, and deal with um, the complexity of living in long for long periods of time in isolated environments so they do analog missions um, like the ones that just uh, started recently where four astronauts uh, analog astronauts will live in uh, a mars simulation based environment uh, which is 3d printed which is pretty cool uh, they're going to live there for 378 days that's a year long it's a it's it's, it's pretty intense. Like you're with four people in a small environment and you need to work, live, and just not just survive, but thrive in these environments. So you, you, we need to be thinking carefully about the psychological component. And the last thing that people really underestimate is the social component or what I, we break down as society and culture, how we interact with others, but how we bring our, how we develop new societies in these micro environments, how how we bring our cultural backgrounds and norms. So if we come back to sexuality and intimate relationships, how we deal with marriage? What are we, how do we deal with sexual norms and sexual scripts in these environments where people might have like a pausing view of, of uh, what marriage is, the relationship, gender roles? Uh, how do we deal with uh, abortion? Like, let's, let's mention it. How do we deal with abortion in space? with the cultural and uh, backgrounds of different people coming from different country? How do we deal with um, challenges related to sexual activities um, informed by cultural backgrounds and whatnot? And when we think about it, okay, an example, the International Space Station. It's an international laboratory in space where people have different sections and it's governed by different countries and there's international zones. But when we go into the, on the moon or Mars and we look at the Artemis Accords, like where there's plenty of countries coming together. These countries have different perspective on what acceptable human sexuality is and human intimacy. So how, how do we deal with that? 
um, when we are going to have these kind of international quarters governed by different entities on earth, maybe self-govern into these micro societies. Um, we need to be thinking about living in these small, relatively small environments for a short period of time, for longer periods of time, where these habitats, they're kind of micro worlds, micro societies in a micro environment. And that's already a complex thing to, uh, to achieve. So we need to be thinking about if you, if the ones, the people who are listening to, uh, to this podcast, if you read our paper, think about these two big circles overlapping these Venn diagrams of technical and human factors. And within that, the biopsychosocial model, which include biology, psychology, society, and cultures. And in the middle of that, we're thinking about space exology as how are we going to promote health and well-being within the complexity of these challenges and these intersecting challenges. So I would say that this model just gives us an idea of how to approach this, uh, these questions in a complex manner, not underestimating each part of it, but just tackling holistically. So it actually raises more questions than it answers, but it provides a framework of let's stop saying, look, it's just a matter of breeding in space or it's just a matter of making sure people are not depressed. It's, it's everything. It's an integrated approach. One of the first topics of interest for you was sort of BDSM kink and all of that. And that's my sweet spot. That's my area of specialty. So thinking about the power dynamics of these sorts of things is fascinating, especially because space missions are usually structured in a sort of military hierarchy. There is a commander, there is a chain of command, there is a very strict protocol in who is accountable to who. And I think about you know, family friends I had years and years ago that met in the Navy and got married. And when they got married, she outranked him and they actually made him move to another base. They ended up being a long distance relationship after marriage because of the military power imbalance. And I'm fascinated to know how that would play out in a small group space setting where you do by necessity have to have a very structured chain of command. But that doesn't mean that our emotions get turned off, especially when we're thinking about long-term missions like going to Mars or being in the International Space Station for a year. You have to be able to balance these two. And I've never heard anybody mention that piece until now listening to you. Tell me more. Yeah, I, I fully agreed. Um, the short answer is I don't know. Really, I don't know how this is going to play out uh, in space. But the fact that I'm saying I don't know means there's a few questions to be asked and a few research to be done. <laughs> so I would say um, from the get-go, my intuition is that the first thing, uh, what we're trying to push in our papers and our research, people who are going to live in space uh, and deal with these power dynamics, but all kinds of other dynamics related to the complexity of human eroticism, is they'll have to become extremely good intimate and sexual communicators. They'll have to, um, we are going to have to train into astronauts and people who live in space, what we call an erotic etiquette. It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a way of, for people to understand their needs, their, um, their desires, communicate it efficiently and understand that other peoples have complex needs and desires and come from a space of empathy. And it come from a space of even friendship and, and collaboration. You are in an environment where you are not just a little dependent on each other. You have a codependency of interdependency that is extreme. I'll give you an example. 
your commanding officer is also, let's say, the medical chief officer. You are a software engineer on on the uh, on the space station or the ship that's going to Mars, and you're a crew of four, six, maybe eight, maybe ten or more in the future. But let's say, like in the, in the last few, the next few years, you need each other. You need each other to survive. You, uh, especially now, right now, we're not saying anything. Um, let's say robots and AIs and partner companion, but even if we were, you need each other to, to survive. You, but you can, you can fall in love with someone, especially, let's be honest, you have similar interests, you're sharing a closed space, you have your needs, you have your own desire. You need to be honest about uh, your interests. You need to be receptive to rejection and, or uh, compliance. You need to deal with jealousy you need to some some people might might feel frustrated online if two people start dating how is this going to affect the chain of command is there going to be favoritism is there going to be perception of some form of conflict of interest um, we need to develop teams not just individuals but individuals who have good erotic etiquette but teams that are able to deal with the complexity of that and communicate their needs communicate um, their reality and Put in place structures of when problems arise. We can talk about a complex problem like breakups, falling in love, uh, dealing with this, but still managing to cooperate and work efficiently. I think maybe an example to just, it is an analogy, okay? Um, it, it's not a perfect uh, example, but it'll give you an idea, I think, of the spirit of what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to convey here. If you have two parents who are raising a child, but they get divorced because one cheated on the other or all kinds of millions of reasons why people uh, break up because they fell out of love and, uh, or they fell in love with someone else, they still have to be uh, develop a, ideally a way of uh, cooperating efficiently for the sake of their children. Okay, for, for, for it to avoid to mental health, try to not badmouth the other person, try to not make the children a collateral damage of, uh, of the reason why they broke up. Now, change the, ch the child for the mission or uh, life on board and child the, try, switch the parents for the astronauts. They need, people need to learn how to become better erotic human beings, basically, and how to communicate, how to deal with that, and how to overcome their feelings and whatnot, to acknowledge them, validate them, and res be respectful of the others, but still put the mission and the safety and the survival and the well-being of others, including themselves, above uh, the, sometimes what we'll say is the impulsive reaction. Well, I'll tell at conferences other people, it is really easy to be mean. It's really easy to be a bad person. It is the, the first impulse is to insult other, badmouth other, is to be aggressive, to be, it's, it's the first thing. What's really difficult is to listen to our prefrontal cortex and control this and, and be it for the sake of that. That's what we need at the same time as a greater understanding of human sexuality and a greater empathy towards each other's feelings. And, but, but this is going to take like, again, an insane amount of research and a very important amount of training. I think right now we're making a mistakes by thinking that everything's going to be fine and the same way that people are going to deal with their, uh, their problems, their in, if intimacy and sexuality on Earth is, is going to be fine in space. It's not fine on Earth. 
first. Secondly, it is going to be compounded and exponentially problematic in space. Uh, so rather than just waiting for issues to arise, I think we should be proactive and, and try to, like I said, Im, uh, implement some form of erotic etiquette and try to foster better erotic individuals as we go into space. And I think coming back to a point I made about the technologies and ideas and research that goes into space goes back into Earth, I think this can actually also inform how we deal with our own eroticism here on Earth. That was exactly what I was thinking as you're talking, right? Because, you know, the common ones are known. Microwaves, lasers came from space research, but also cleaner water, um, safer food. There is a lot of benefits towards looking at the extremes when you're designing a product. And nowhere is it more extreme than taking, you know, eight people and putting them in a ship for six to nine months in terms of how you navigate relationships, in terms of all that. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot that can be, can be learned from your research. Uh, above and beyond the, the space geek in me who likes everything stars, right? Star Wars, Star Trek, all that. I want to know more about it. I want to see that future. It will certainly be long after I'm gone, but I, I love the part that you're playing and bringing that future to life. As we get to our, our last uh, couple minutes together, and the time went by really quick, uh, as we get to our last couple minutes together, you know, is there a certain aspect of your research that our listeners should be looking to or thinking about when they're thinking about their own relationships here and now, here, still on Earth? Yeah, I think especially with the pandemic and some of the social transformation that we're living through, uh, I think, first of all, they should find they shouldn't be afraid to leverage technologies in general to try to enhance their sexuality and explore and, and communicate with their partners, uh, their needs and what they'd be willing to do. I think that's at the foundation of any healthy relationship is just to be honest and communicate in a respectful manner. Um, what we want for ourselves, what we want in out of relationships and try to be proactive. And I think that's um, that's reflected in uh, our research on space exology and both aeropotics, this really sex positive approach, this communication and needs oriented approach and this wellness oriented approach. This The second thing I would say is, and that's more, I think, for space organizations and uh, even like technologists um, and technology businesses, there, there's problems that are going to happen. And we need to be proactive within that. And one thing I want to push forward related to these things, because we've seen it in the future, we're seeing it now, and I think uh, it is going to receive a growing attention. You need to be thinking about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion when you think about space programs and the design of erotic uh, technologies. We have already seen issues of sexual harassment, of sexual uh, assault, in space uh, analogs, but also in just scientific missions in, in close environments. NASA, CSA, ESA, you know there's a problem. You're aware that there's a problem. You cannot hide. You cannot uh, say that uh, this is not important. It is going to affect all kinds of uh, individuals from the greater diversity of human eroticism. Uh, you need to be thinking about the intersectional phenomenon that happens uh, between different identities and, and realities and whatnot. Space is for everyone, and you should be thinking on how to make it accessible and safe for everyone. For everyone who wants to participate and contribute to our, our space endeavor and future of our space exploration, 
deal with it. <laughs> deal with it right now. And we are going to make a, the future of our space faring civilization uh, way more interesting and uh, to make space more pleasurable, safe, and accessible for everyone. I love this so much. I love the call to just dealing with the reality of intimate relationships and sexuality instead of pretending it's not there. I love the the necessity of diversity and equity and inclusion in ways that don't just mean we don't send dudes to space. That's not equity or inclusion. Thank you so much, Simon, for this really amazing and unexpectedly fascinating conversation around sex and space. I don't know that I was prepared for this and you really have given me a lot to think about and it was it's been amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And just before we close, I want to give a, a, a big shout out to my colleagues. This is not the work of one person. Some of my favorite people in this industry and my close collaborators, Maria Santaguida, we have a paper accepted in Current Sexual Health Report. It is called Sexual Health in Space, a five-year scoping review. It should be published and accessible, open access to the public, sponsored by the Kinsey, the open access, uh, is going to be accessible in the next two weeks uh, for everyone. This is really going to give a, an overview of, of where we're at right now and where we need to go in the future. Uh, people, Dr. Shana Pandya, who's just straight up Wonder Woman. I don't know how many hours she has uh, in a day. Dr. Judith Lapierre, Dave Antil, uh, Alex Leyendecker, uh, Dr. Egbert Elbrock, and also my collaborators at Love and Sex with Robots, uh, Bobby and uh, Ken and uh, Emily. If if the auditors and people who are listening to this want to learn more about robotics and uh, and human machine interaction, just come to our uh, to our event. Come to uh, LSR. And you'll learn from people in academia, but also in the industry and everything where sex tech is going. And to people uh, who are listening from the space industry, private or uh, governmental, we're here for uh, the research. You have the expertise, we have uh, the collaborations, we have the network. Reach out. We just want to partner and, and push scientific uh, research forward. So thank you to everyone that was just mentioned. This has been a great talk. I'm looking forward to that paper. Uh, to the audience, thank you so much for tuning in to Securing Sexuality, your source of the information you need to protect yourself and your relationships. Securing Sexuality is brought to you by the Bound Together Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit. From the bedroom to the cloud, we're here to help you navigate safe sex in a digital age. Be sure to check out our website, securingsexuality.com, for links to more information about the topics we discussed here today, as well as our conference coming in Detroit. Yeah, start at Love, Sex, and Robots, end at Securing Sexuality, make a vacation out of it, and <laughs> join us again for more fascinating conversations about the intersection of sexuality and technology. Have a great week.